Hi, this is Leslie Vernick, and I am so happy to introduce to you an old friend of mine, Jill Savage. Jill's an author and speaker who is passionate about relationships like I am. She's been called one of today's most exciting female speakers. Her honest, engaging communication is strengthened by her ability to make her audiences laugh while they learn. Jill, that is something that I don't do very well. I'm usually <laughs> the serious one. <laughs> Jill is the host of the No More Perfect podcast, the creator of five online courses, and the author of 14 books, including Empty Nest, Full Life, Real Moms, Real Jesus, the best-selling No More Perfect Moms, No More Perfect Kids, No More Perfect Marriages, and My Heart is Broken. Jill and her husband, Mark, live in Illinois and have five children and eight grandchildren. You can find more about Jill online at www.jillsavage.org. Jill, I've been, I think, at your house when I was there with Kendra and, you know, talked with Mark and saw your little, I don't know what kind of house you live in now, but the house that you lived in then, that was probably close to 25 years ago. It was a long time. Oh my time gosh. Ago. That was a long time ago. You're exactly right. Yeah. yeah. I can't remember. Yeah. We are in a farmhouse now out in the country. So that might have been pre-farmhouse. I don't remember, but yes, that is a long time ago. We go way back. <laughs> we do. We do. I've been interviewing people that I've gone way back with. And it's just interesting to see how God has taken us on different journeys. And, you know, I knew you and Mark before you had your detour, before you had this huge marital rocky bump. I remember Mark coming up to me. He's a pastor. And he said to me, I loved your book, How to Act Right When Your Spouse Acts Wrong. And then he went and acted wrong and you had to learn how to act right. So it was very interesting to watch how that played out. But you yep. did have this detour in a very, what looked on the outside as this Christian couple in ministry, doing great, doing so much good. And so I'd like to start just if you would be willing to share what happened after 28 years of marriage, this huge detour, because I think this relates to many of the women in my audience. Right, right. Yeah, well, um, I would say that it really started for us um, the year that Mark uh, resigned from pastoring. He'd been a pastor for 20 years. And in that uh, 20 years time, he had served on a large church staff for 10 years, as did I. Um, and then we church planted in our community uh, for the second 10 years. And that church plant experience was pretty difficult for us. Uh, I would say it kind of beat both of us up um, in a variety of ways. And so he just really, he felt like he needed a break. And so he uh, resigned from pastoring, decided he was actually going to go back to running a construction company, something that he had done before. He did primarily handyman work and, uh, you know, was building uh, this construction company. But I knew I could see that he was struggling and Mark had always struggled, honestly, for all of our marriage. Um, he was raised in an abusive home. And uh, so he had struggled with his self-worth. He had struggled with his identity. He had struggled. He used to say, and, and well, in fact, he now says, even when we talk and share on the, the topic, he'll say, I can never be free of me. Mm -hmm. That's what he would say. I could never be free of me. And so... Um, so he had had depression off and on over the years. Uh, and so I knew he struggled. I knew he was going through a struggle, but I had no idea how deep it was this time because it, what was happening is he would have said that his identity wasn't wrapped up in pastoring, but the truth was it really had been. 
And uh, so at, at about two years, no, about a year after he resigned uh, from pastoring, he um, just really detached from me. Like he, I could just tell he was shutting down. Um, we got back into counseling. Um, we had done that on several occasions over the years. So we got back into some counseling. Uh, you know, he, he would do a lot of complaining. He would say things like, we're just too different. We're just too different. And he would express his frustration, but I, I, it wasn't clear what he was really wanting. Um, and in the midst of that, um, an, an old friend from high school reached out to him on Facebook and, um, you know, his heart was not in a good place. And before you knew it, uh, he was engaged in this relationship initially emotionally for several months until it became physical. And uh, I discovered it a couple of months. I discovered the emotional connection a couple of months after it began. Um, he said he would stop. Um, he minimized it. Uh, and then uh really, it just kind of went underground. And then I discovered the physical uh, affair uh, several months after that. And uh, that honestly began uh, my journey of standing for my marriage, uh, because I knew that this was not the man I married. I knew he was lost. I knew he was personally struggling. And when I asked God, what do you want me to do? I felt like God only gave me one direction and that was to love him. And I was initially pretty ticked at that instruction um, because I, you know, my thought was he's not very lovable right now, but. Um, love has very different faces sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I felt like the Lord whispered back to my heart, you know, Jill, sometimes you aren't either. And I thought, you know what? Lord, you love me when I'm unlovable. I don't know how to do that. And whether my marriage makes it or doesn't make it, maybe I have some lessons to learn about love and some other things. Mm -hmm. And that really became my journey during that time. And honestly, Leslie, for much of the uh, nine months that followed, I didn't think my marriage would make it. He was showing no evidence of that. And so um, I, I really didn't think it would. Um, he literally had his own personal resurrection on Easter Sunday of 2012. And that turned the marriage around and it turned him around personally. Um, but for much of that time, I kind of had to hold it and go, I don't know if my marriage is going to make it or not, but Lord, what do you want to do with me during this time? And God took me on quite a personal journey. I love that you said that, Jill, because I think this is really, really important for women to hear. You know, you first said, I, I, God called you to stand for your marriage. But I think what, what might be more clear is you didn't really have any control over whether your marriage was going to make it. Mm -mm. God called you to stand for who you were supposed to be in this moment. And you were supposed to be not just, obviously you were going to be angry and hurt and you needed to process that. But what does it look like to love an enemy, someone who's deeply hurt me, yes. who's betrayed our vows, who's, you know, crashed our family into a brick wall and we're in a million pieces. What does that look like 
sound like, feel like for me as a Christian woman, a Christian leader, what does that look like? And I don't know. I don't know how to do that. And you said it so well when you said, maybe I have, you know, obviously Mark had things to learn. And that's kind of what happens in our audience. Sometimes we think, oh, he has the whole burden to learn these things. But God never wastes our suffering. And so if we're (laughs) in the moment, we have something to learn too. And so how do I love an enemy? How do I love and have good boundaries? How do I love and be truthful? You know, it's not just being mushy and, you know, oh, it doesn't matter. You can do whatever you want and I'm going to bounce back. That's not the kind of love we're talking about. So talk some more about what you were learning in that. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, eventually um, God took me in his word to Romans 12, 9 through 21. And um, that just became kind of my marching orders. Um, As I was reading through, uh, it was, you know, it talked about honoring one another. And it didn't say honor where honor was due. It just said honor. And it said, don't come over, don't overcome evil uh, with evil, overcome evil with good. Um, And many other verses that just really gave me some direction. And so uh, that really, you know, that became Uh, I read it morning and night and Leslie, uh, during the part of that time we were separated, um, Mark left and, um, and I would read God's word and lay it on my, uh, lay my Bible on his pillow because nights were the hardest for me. And I would lay my Bible on his pillow. So it was the last thing I saw. And then it was the first thing I saw in the morning and I'd pick it up and I'd read Romans 12, nine through 21. Literally, I read that over and over and over again. And, um, and sometimes love did was limits. It was boundaries. It was, no, you can't treat me this way. You can't treat our children this way. Um, you know, when, when he left, I had to set some pretty clear boundaries. Um, our home, uh, if he was, you know, he initially tried to kind of come and go and I, I had to say, I'm sorry, but, um, you have broken our, our kids' hearts and they are wounded every time you enter and exit. So, uh, you can't just come and go. And, uh, that even that's love like that, that is, uh, I, I said it in a loving way. I delivered it in a loving way. You know, I even said, I, I want you to be able to eventually come home. I long for you to be able to be home. But right now, because of the decisions that you have made, this is how it's going to have to work. And, um, but God did. So you, so you, so you treated him, and I, lo- I just want to emphasize this for our women. You treated him as an image bearer not yes. as a scoundrel. Yes. I've and never thought both. of it in those words. Yes. But honoring him is not because he was honorable at the time. He was acting like a scoundrel, but he also was still an image bearer. Yes. And you were treating him with honor because he was an image bearer, not because he was doing the right thing. Yes. Yes. And I, um, I love how you just said that because you're exactly right. Um, and one of the things he said to me later on, So after he made his U-turn and I actually, uh, well, actually he said to me one night, he said to me, this is in the middle of our, our separation. We were having a conversation about something. And finally he just said to me, I don't get you. He said, I don't get, you have treated me. Now, let me tell you, Leslie, I didn't do it perfectly because there were times 
I didn't treat him well. <laughs> well, good to know. Good to and know that there is no more perfect gel, right? <laughs> my anger, not the best part of me. I remember one particular night when the toilet overflowed on the, the, the second floor of the house. It came down onto the main floor. It went down into the basement. I was home alone because he had left. I was not a happy camper, nor did I handle that well. So I just want you yes, to know I that. had one of those incidents, too. That was only the first and only time I ever swore at my husband <laughs> when brown <laughs> liquid was coming down my kitchen chandelier. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So let's just get that straight. But I would say I was becoming characterized by loving and uh, and treating him as that image bearer. And so he said to me, I don't get you. How have you treated me so kindly when I have treated you so poorly? And I thought for a moment, because honestly, here's another area God was growing me. God was growing me in so many areas, how to love, how to keep my mouth shut, how to weigh my words that when I spoke them, they were from him and not from me all the time. Um, he was, you know, just teaching me so much. But um, so I, I kind of stopped and I prayed and I said, Lord, I don't know how to answer that question. And then the only words that came out of my mouth is I said, I don't know, Mark, it's unhumanable. And he says, unhumanable, what kind of word is that? And I said, I don't even know. And I said, it's just what came to my mind. I said, it's not, you can't do it in your own human strength. It's only because of Jesus. And I came home and I looked, I opened my Bible to Romans 12, 9 through 21. And I wrote the words unhumanable uh, in, in the margin. And to this day, I still use that Bible. And when I go to those verses, I see that because that was unhumanable love. And I learned so much about unhumanable love. But later when um, he came home and I actually shared with him those verses and we read them together. And at the end, it says, for by doing so, you will heap burning coals upon their head. And Mark said, you did that. And I said, I did what? He said, you heaped burning coals on my head. I said, Mark, I don't even know what that part of the verse means. I don't even understand that. He said, you treated me better than I deserve to be treated. And I noticed that. And it, it touched my heart. Yeah, yeah. Yes. This yes. is so important, Jill, for our listeners, because, you know, it, sometimes we feel like, oh, I'm entitled to treat him like he treated me. And you can do that. But that's when the problem becomes very messy then, because he's bad, you're bad. He hurts you, you hurt him. He sins against you, you sin against him. And so one of the things we say is, how do we keep our side of the street clean yep. so that the opportunity for him to see his wickedness or his sinfulness or his selfishness becomes much more obvious? That's the heaping burning coals, that they see all of that much more clearly than seeing all your junk that you aren't yes. doing right. Right. Because then it becomes very easy for them to point the finger. Yes. And no so wonder that, I cheated on you. Yeah. No wonder I don't like you. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, that was that was really it was a huge, huge lesson for me in uh, loving, you know, loving someone who wasn't loving you back. I, honestly, I feel like God grew my love deeper because I only kind of knew I, I, I like to say I, I knew convenient love. I didn't know challenging love. Yeah. I 
didn't really understand when love had to be a real choice. Like it wasn't a feeling and it had to be a decision. And um, that was so very powerful. And I would say another thing that um, I also learned, Leslie, I, um, in that process, so we had been seeing the counselor. I, he, Mark stopped seeing the counselor. I kept seeing the counselor because I was like, I got to work on me. And one of the things I discovered in the midst of my counseling and, and just my own personal work is that I was an avoider. And so I had the tendency to avoid um, uh, emotional connection. Uh, and my husband's a feeler, like he's naturally uh, a, an empathetic, uh, sensitive guy. And he was married to a woman who had a hardness about her. And, and so I had to begin to look at that. And one of the things I often say is I didn't, I did not cause my husband's infidelity, but I contributed to the dysfunction in our marriage. And I had to begin to look at that. And one way was not understanding, coming to understand that I had some limited understanding of what emotional connection really looked like from my own home of origin, which was mm -hmm. a wonderful home, a wonderful family, like very loving, but we just didn't do emotion. So I operated more in that buck up mindset, which wasn't helpful in my marriage. Sometimes it made me a leader that could easily be in difficult situations and not get her feelings hurt, but it didn't necessarily make me a compassionate mother or a compassionate wife. Mm -hmm. And that was another place that God began to, to grow me and, and help me to see things that I needed to see. I'm so grateful, Jill, for your and Mark's willingness to share the icky part of the story, because I think it's so important that when, when things go south in a marriage, I love how you said, I'm not taking any responsibility for Mark's choice to have an affair. That's not my fault at all. But I am taking some responsibility for the state of affairs in our relationship itself. Mm -hmm. And God has shown me some things about me that may have impacted him in hurtful ways that I didn't even know about. It's not like I did it on purpose or was mm -hmm. trying to be mean spirited. It's just this is the good that comes out of pain that God promises that all things work together for our good in Romans. Um, and so I love that you're sharing that because I think in the Christian community, you know, we're afraid to be honest with mm -hmm. our foibles or we make things very black and white. Like I'm the good guy. You're the bad guy. Yes. And, you know, yes, he sinned in a very public, shameful, hurtful way. Mm -hmm. Um, but when we judge them as bad and we see ourselves as the good guy, I don't think we're seeing clearly because we have our own faults. They may not be as bad or as public or uh, those kind of things, but we do need to look at that because that's the only part we can change. That's the only thing we can do. We can't fix them. We can only say, God, what do you have to teach me through this? And that's what you exactly. did. It's such a great example. Yeah. It, it reminds me also of Matthew 7, where it says, uh, why do you try to, to remove the speck out of um, your brother's eye when there's a plank in your own eye? First, remove the plank. And I remember one time, and this was before our crisis, but one time God kind of really used that scripture for me um, because Mark did come from such a difficult 
home environment that it was like, you know, when we teach on marriage now, and we, we do a lot of marriage conferences for churches and different things like that. And, um, you know, we always talk about, we all bring baggage into marriage. We all bring baggage into marriage. But as Mark will say that I brought five suitcases of baggage into my marriage and he brought five semi trucks of suitcases <laughs> to our marriage. And so I don't know that really that's the, uh, you know, the accurate one, but that's what it felt. It feels like. Um, and so therefore what often would happen for me, and this was also part of what I contributed to the dysfunction in our marriage is it became easy to point my finger at all of his suitcases and to go, yeah. well, obviously you're the bigger problem here. Mm -hmm. And that is a spirit of judgment. And honestly, here's what was happening with that, Leslie, is I would point my finger at him and then he'd have to turn around and kind of defend himself against me. And so I was actually distracting him from opening his suitcases because I kept pointing my finger and he kept having to defend himself. And when I began to open my suitcases, when I began to look at my stuff, it actually freed him up to look at his stuff. And, and, and I was removing the plank out of my own. I remember one day reading that scripture and the Lord even, like, as I read it, the Lord changed the words on the page. It was like, why do you try to remove the speck out of your husband's eye when there's a plank in your own eye? And I felt like God took the plank in my eye and hit me over the head with it that day because like I needed to wake up and see how much my actions were actually slowing down the healing process. And I needed to, like you said, clean up my side of the street, open up my suitcases, dig into my junk in the trunk so that uh, I, I was not always pointing the finger at him. Yeah. We call that hashtag doing your own work in our ministry because it's so tempting to define his work. And he definitely had yeah. work to do. You, you could have never reconciled your marriage had he not done his work. But here's where the, 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 the most important probably takeaway for our listeners are if he hadn't done his work mm -hmm. um, and your marriage ended, mm -hmm. you still would have been a better person because of it, because of all the work you did, because yes. you did do your work. Yes, exactly. In fact, we um, we have an online course we created, Mark and I created together. It's called The Weight Is Not Wasted. And it is designed for people to do their own work so that, and we, we tell them, I, we can't promise you that your marriage will make it. We can't do that. We can promise you that if you'll do your work, you'll increase the possibility. But um, I, you, you know, it, it requires both parties to be able to do their own work for uh, your marriage to make it. But what we can say is, and you, this is, it, sometimes I will say, take this really crappy season and use it for fertilizer in your life. With <laughs> <laughs> metaphors, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so let's, let's talk about, so, so you were doing your work, Mark started doing his work. And you started talking, what do you, both from your own personal experience and working with other couples, what do you see as some of the key steps forward if they're going to rebuild? Obviously, I think the key points that we've talked about so far is you cannot rebuild a healthy marriage from an unhealthy marriage unless both people get healthy. 
So by you doing your work and him doing his work, whether you can rebuild the marriage is still yet to be determined, but you can't rebuild a marriage first with two unhealthy people who still have five unpacked suitcases and five semi-trucks full of stuff. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. Exactly. So, yeah. So that's so, the first step. Well, we, we like to say that we have a 2.0 marriage now and we love the 2.0s, but in order to have a 2.0 marriage, there had to be a 2.0 Jill and a 2.0 Mark. Yeah. And so, um, that, that personal responsibility for your own growth and digging into that is super, super important. And so uh, definitely uh, we both uh, continued with individual counseling. Uh, we, uh, we began to get after it, like reading books on whatever it was that we were bringing into the relationship. You know, for me, it was addressing um, my harshness and my avoidant personality, uh, my avoidant attachment. Um, for Mark, he had more of an anxious attachment. And so it, he, he was digging into that and trying to understand that. Um, and uh, we're both way more secure uh, now than uh, we were then. That's the 2.0 marriage that we have uh, is because you have two secure people rather than an avoidant and an anxious person. Um, and so uh, most definitely it required that. The other thing that it required is people don't realize this, especially when trust has been broken. They feel like forgiveness equals rebuilt trust. Not at all. Forgiveness opens the door for trust to be rebuilt. But trust, the only way you can rebuild trust is consistent change behavior over time. Yeah. There's no other way. You cannot shortcut it. Yeah. Uh, forgiving the other person does not do it. Uh, being forgiven by the other person does not do it. It takes consistent change behavior over time. And so Mark had to rebuild my trust. But honestly, Leslie, I, I, I had to rebuild his trust in different ways. He had to rebuild my trust as it related to the unfaithfulness. Um, I had to rebuild his trust as it related to my critical spirit, my um, harshness, with him, my lack of empathy and compassion. Uh, you know, he was, he was a little afraid to put his toe back into the relationship mm -hmm. too. It worked both ways. And so it takes time and intentionality, but it is incredibly possible when you have both people willing to do the work. I heard a really powerful phrase about forgiveness and trust, and I really liked it. It's forgiveness is about the past. And trust is about the future. Mm, that's good. Isn't that good? It is. Yes. But they they can't, you know, a lot of people that we work with when we're coaching or in our intensives, they will struggle with the forgiveness part because they think it means they have to trust. And it's like, no, 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 no. Two completely different things. You have to forgive to get your heart uncluttered and available to God and even available to consider whether the relationship right. can be, be rebuilt. So it's a very personal, you know, I think a lot of times we think of forgiveness as being something between us and another person. And really it's between us and the Lord That's right. way more than anything else. It's about getting our heart uncluttered and available to him 
Um, and, and so, uh, but the rebuilding trust part, yeah, definitely that's going to happen person to person as we become trustworthy, uh, and prove that we can actually, um, you know, be a different person in this relationship moving forward. So that, that's so good. And so give us some steps that you and Mark took and what were some of the signs, like the signposts that trust was being rebuilt? Yeah. So um, some of the steps that we did, well, first um, for him, he opened everything up to me and um, there were just no secrets anywhere. One of the things we learned is the importance of uh, pushing accountability versus policing accountability. I didn't want to be a policeman in his life. That's not healthy for our relationship. And so he began pushing accountability, meaning that he would put things on the table. He would say things like the other person uh, lived in another city. And if he got a phone call on his phone from that area code, he would say, hey, I got a phone call from this area code today. I didn't answer it. I haven't listened to the to the uh, voicemail, could we do that together? Uh, so it was like, I didn't have to worry about us. You know, I didn't have to worry about policing his life. Um, he, he gave me uh, passwords and said, you, you know, I'm an open book. So that made, uh, that made rebuilding trust uh, that much easier. Now, I will say it didn't shorten time because it still takes time, but it, it, there was no nothing being hidden. Um, same for me. You know, I would even um, say to him, I want to answer your question in a way differently than I than 1.0 Jill would have. Um, and so give me just a moment to think through this and uh, and to be able to interact with you in a healthier way so that because his anxiety, sometimes when I would slow down my responses, it would, it would cause him to be more anxious. Um, so I would push that information to him. Uh, so I think those were really um, important steps. What if there was a biblical way to love a destructive person without enabling him to destroy you? Leslie's walking and core strength program is specifically designed to help you think for yourself. Core Strength will teach you to identify beliefs you have that keep you stuck. Core Strength will help you get honest and stop pretending that things are fine when they're really not. And Core Strength will empower you to understand what you are and what you're not responsible for. You can't make him get it, but there's plenty you can do for yourself. This small group coaching opportunity will show you how. It's open now for a short time. Go to lesliewernick.com forward slash strength to sign up. We got help. Uh, we didn't try to go it alone. I, I think that a lot of times people try to go it alone. Some of the people we work with as marriage coaches will say, um, like maybe they had a situation that happened five years ago or 10 years ago, and now they're in another situation. And I'll say, well, what, what did you do five years ago, 10 years ago? And they're like, we just kind of move forward from it. It's like, uh, yeah, no, you can't just slap right. a Band-Aid on and say, oh, I'm never going to do this again. You need to dig into the whys, the whats, understand how this happened. A lot of times people don't want to go back and look at things. They don't want to go back and look at their childhood. And 
you have to be willing to do that. Uh, we call that the autopsy part of the journey is you need to do an autopsy on what brought about the death in your relationship so that then you can actually experience the resurrection and the new, the new life. So we were willing to do that both individually and together. And I, I think that that's oftentimes where you need some help because uh, a good counselor, um, what we do in our marriage coaching, ask the right questions to help you think about things that maybe you've never thought about before. Well, so what I'm hearing is that it's so important. One of the ingredients of bringing back this marriage isn't just desire. Like I want to come home. I want to come home or I want to be with you again, but it's the willingness to learn, grow and be teachable. And yes. some people are just not, they think they know everything. They don't need everything. The past is the past. Let's move on. I don't want to talk about it. And that's a defense mechanism. And we can show respect and care for their decision, but don't mm -hmm. be fooled that it won't impact you if you try to reconcile this relationship, because you can't repair a broken relationship unless you're willing to look at what broke it and why and how. Yep. You're exactly right. That teachable spirit is very, very important. It's really interesting. Mark was not a reader before the crisis. After the crisis, he became a voracious reader. He outreads me and I was a reader um, because he wants, he, he really has that desire to learn. And, uh, and I'm not saying that everybody has to become a reader, but that's just evidence of that really that mindset, uh, that teachable mindset. And I would say the other thing that both of us made huge changes on is uh, paying attention to what was going on inside our head. Our thoughts are really, they can become very dangerous at times and lead us in some wrong directions. Um, my thoughts tended to be judgmental. Mark's thoughts tended to be emotionally led. And, um, and while emotions are fabulous and God-given and super important, they're never designed to be our leader. And so a lot of where he ended up in trouble was letting his emotions lead him rather than letting truth lead him. Um, and for me, my emotions were shut down. So I had to um, kind of do the opposite. I actually I had to engage that part of me, learn more about it, but also pay attention to my thinking about it. Like when I examined even my childhood, I realized one of my messages was feelings don't matter. Feelings don't matter. I would say that over and over again, sometimes verbally, but a lot of times up here. But then what that did is it made me minimize the feelings of my husband or even my kids. And, um, and that's what made me a buck up mom, a buck up wife which wasn't helpful from a relationship perspective because I wasn't able to be empathetic. And so paying attention to those messages in our head that sometimes are leading us in the wrong direction and flipping those to better match truth, God's truth, um, was an important part of the journey for both of us. Yeah. One tool we use in our groups is we say, okay, <clears throat> let's define the facts. What are the facts? The facts are he cheated on me or the facts are he's an addict or the facts are, you know, he had a rotten childhood. What's the story I'm telling myself about the facts? Yes. Right. Because that's the place where we get in trouble. We can't change the facts, 
But the story like, oh, he'll never change or our marriage is lost for good or, you know, this can't be fixed. Whatever story we're telling ourselves or yes. every, everything will be fine if we just go to church again. Whatever story we're telling ourselves uh, is something that we might by living in La La Land. It's a total fantasy. The facts are the facts. But the story is something we really need to pay attention to because that can lead us in the wrong direction. Totally. Absolutely. Agree with that. And I think that's uh, that was a big part of our healing process. And it's a big part of how we help others uh, through their journeys as well, is really examining those stories, identifying them, putting words to maybe that we don't even recognize are there. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah they feel mm-hmm. like facts, especially mm-hmm. if we're emotionally driven. The, the facts the story feels like the facts instead of separating the facts out from the story. They feel all in the one and the same. Mm -hmm. Tell us, I think it would be helpful to revisit the whole idea. Can you love and set boundaries at the same time? And is, Mm -hmm. we would say it's loving to set boundaries. It's loving for your children to set boundaries. It's loving in your marriage to set some boundaries, but talk some more about how you've discovered that because I think that's really important because I think for you know, you've been in the Christian world, I've been in the Christian world, for women to set boundaries, for women to even say no in their marriage has sort of been frowned on. Like, oh, you're being too strong. You're being unsubmissive. You're not letting your husband lead you. You're not, you know, being a godly person. And so what does that look like for you as a, as a female, as a godly woman to love and set boundaries? Mm-hmm. Well, I, you know, you're right. There's a lot of messages that, um, that come from the church, from the world. There's, I mean, there's a lot of messages. Um, I do believe, you know, we're accountable to God and like, we're accountable. Uh, that's where we get our marching orders is from him. Um, and so, you know, there's lots of different, as far as, uh, the role of the man, the role of the woman, there's, people sit in lots of different places on that, but our accountability is to the Lord. And so uh, first, I think that it is kind of getting my marching orders from him. Like, Lord, something feels off here. What feels off? What do I need to make a request for, set a boundary for, um, you know, so first it's, it's taking that. In fact, one of the things I often, uh, you know, I, I operate off of is you got to talk to Jesus before you ever talk to your spouse, like keep talking to the Lord. Cause he's going to, he's going to bring clarity for those things, but it's also okay to draw a line when there is something that you feel like the other person is either stepped over a line when, when their actions are causing hurt in a way, um, they're unaware of, And, uh, you know, you can first start with a request, but if they can't, and and here's something, Leslie, that I have uh, become more and more aware of. A complaint is not a request. A complaint is a complaint. A request is specifically, I'm asking you to please do this or not do this. And that is a clear request. Um, but if they can't, then it is communicating. If this happens again, I want you to know this is what will happen on my end. So setting that, that boundary and letting them know, um, that, you know, you you can make whatever choice you want, but I, if you make X choice, this is what I will 
uh, this is the choice I'll be making. This is the decision I'll be making. Um, delivering that in a loving way, in a way that is not filled with you, 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 but it's communicating. This is uh, the the line I'm drawing. This is the boundary. Um, is a very loving uh, thing to do. Jesus was a boundary setter. And so he's our role model for that. God set boundaries even in the garden. He did. And so for us to think that it's ungodly to set boundaries is a wrong perspective because God is a God of boundaries. And um, so, but it, we have to learn how to do that. And we have to learn how to do that in a way that also is honoring and treats the other person, even in the midst of the boundary as you said, an image bearer rather than a scoundrel. Right. And a boundary isn't about the other person, really. The boundary is self-stewardship. Right? So we all, we all have boundaries over our ATM card. You know, we don't just hand out our ATM card with our code and say, help yourself. We have boundaries. If someone asks us for money, we think about it. Do we have those resources? Do we have those resources to give? How much do I want to give? And is this person needing it for a good cause? Or are they going to go buy alcohol or drugs or something else? And so we have boundaries around that. We don't feel guilty, but, but our time, our energy, our body, our, you know, our resources, our gifts, we sort of think that it's selfish to not have everyone have access to that. And so to be able to say, hey, if you choose to drink at the party, I'm going to call an Uber, mm -hmm. right? I'm going to call an Uber to drive home. I'm not going to drive home with you unless you let me drive. So those are my boundaries for my self-stewardship. I'm not trying to control you. I'm not saying you can't drink. Those are your boundaries. You can only have one drink at the party. That's not mine to call for you. That's yours mm -hmm. to call for you. But if you choose to do that, then I don't feel this safe. What I'll do. And mm -hmm. I need to do this. And so I think it's really important that we help people understand that it's communicating honestly what you're willing to do, what you're not willing to do, who you are, who you're not. Mm -hmm. right? Exactly. Exactly. Yep. So good. So good. Last question. When life is hard, why is faith important? Oh, my goodness. Because it is the only thing that's a sure thing. <laughs> yeah. There's um, a lot of uncertainty in our world, isn't there? There is. Yeah. Yeah. And I can't even imagine people that go through what I walked through. And, and this isn't the only hard thing I've walked through. I've had breast cancer. We have a son with severe mental health issues. Um, it has been, it's been a journey, but when the world is turning upside down, when it is changing day by day, hour by hour, even minute by minute, God doesn't change. And yeah. we need that steadiness in our life. We need that solid rock, that, that firm foundation under our feet, because everything else has the ability to change. But God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And we can depend on that. We need that. And then we also need that direction for our life. Because if not, then we're being tossed around by our emotions. We're being tossed around by um, uh, the whims of the world, the general, uh, you know, wisdom of the world. We need solid wisdom. We need wisdom. You know, if I, if I hadn't had the wisdom of 
uh, Romans 12, 9 through 21 to guide me through those dark months. Um, I, I have no doubt that I would have mishandled many, many, many situations. And so we need that kind of wisdom that, that is, um, really brings life, um, helps us to look at ourselves gives us wisdom to know next steps that we need to take. And we need that uh, sure footing in the midst of the craziness of a world being turned upside down. Absolutely. You're so right there. And so out of all of this, you have begun this book course podcast of no more perfect, no more perfect, <laughs> no more perfect kids, no more perfect marriage, no more perfect mom. And that's so important because in our social media world, we're all projecting, look at my life. I've got it all together when in fact we don't. And so mm -hmm. why, especially for the Christian community <sighs> is this message, no more perfect, so important and actually freeing. Oh, you know, I, I like to say that we have all, we all struggle with the perfection infection. For some of us, we have carried that uh, for much of our lives. Um, uh, others have been affected by uh, the advent of social media. But um, what that does is it robs us of contentment what we need to do is recognize and, and change the story we tell ourselves. Like, you know, maybe you're in the checkout line at the grocery store and you see the person standing in front of you and they look all put together. Right. And, and if we can in that moment go, she has pain in her life. It's just not evident. That pulls us back from that ledge of comparison and plants us on the firm foundation of reality. Uh, we can do the same thing when we see somebody and they look like they don't have it together. And then that kind of brings about like, you know, a little bit of um, judgment and pride in our life. Like, well, I'm doing better than she is. Hey, we all have pain in our life. So I think that we do each other a disservice by not sharing our pain. Um I think that we need to be much more honest, much more, um, certainly in appropriate environments. Like, you know, not everybody's called to get on a podcast and talk about their deep, dark secrets. Um, although my husband and I both agree that we are called to do that. But sometimes it's just being a little bit more honest, sitting across the table, having a cup of coffee with a friend yep. and letting her know about the imperfect parts of your life or the places that you're struggling or when you've been where she is. And that's the beautiful gift that we need to give to one another because um, that's really when we experience the depth of community. That's when our pain actually has a purpose. Uh, and that's how God begins to redeem uh, some of those broken places is when we can use our pain to help someone else. Uh, we provide them some comfort. Uh, the scripture says that, you know, from how we have walked that journey and letting them know they're not alone is a beautiful gift that we can give to someone else. What a beautiful way to end Jill, because this podcast is about relationship, truth, unfiltered. And I think we've been fed a lie that, if you're a good Christian, you won't struggle in relationships. 
that everything mm-hmm. will go smooth, that you'll have the perfect kids. If you're just the perfect mom, you're going to have the perfect kids. You're going to have the perfect. And it's just a big old fat lie. It's a yep. story that we've been sold and we've believed. And so all of us feel inadequate, ashamed, embarrassed, and lonely and lonely. Mm-hmm. And so if we can tell the truth, relationships are hard and they're messy and people can disappoint us. And we are going to be married and live with imperfect people. And that doesn't have to be the end of the story. Nope, because we live with imperfect people. We are an imperfect person, but God's in the process of perfecting us. And that's the journey of maturity. That's the journey of learning more about ourselves. That's the the journey of becoming more like Christ. Yeah. And if a couple can be on that together, there's no reason why their marriage can't pull together. And the sad thing is that's not always the case because someone doesn't want to grow. Someone is stuck in their pride that they know it all and they don't need to be taught or they're not willing to open up because they're ashamed and it's too scary. And so we understand that, but there is hope and there is healing for those of us who do want to do that. So that's God's will for us to have healthy, strong, good, not perfect relationships. So thanks Jill Mm -hmm. so much. Would you pray for us before we close and for our listeners? Absolutely. Oh, Father, thank you so much for this honest, vulnerable conversation. Thank you so much for the ministry that Leslie has. Lord, I just pray for each person that's listening today. And I pray, Father, that you have birthed hope in some way in their heart, hope for their own personal growth, hope for the possibilities um, that you can take a dark season and you can turn it into something beautiful. Hope that uh, when you do your best work in our lives, uh, you move us from where we are to where you want us to be. And Father, hope that you can take the broken pieces and you can uh, often fabricate them into something brand new, something different. But we're so grateful, Lord, um, for when you do that in our lives. I pray, Father, for uh, each person here to uh, have a clear picture of the next right step they can take in their own personal journey. And it's in your son's most precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to Relationship Truth Unfiltered. As a reminder, Leslie's Walking in Core Strength group coaching program, it's only open for a short time. Friend, I want to encourage you to invest in yourself, in your relationship, and in your future. Go to leslievernick.com forward slash strength to sign up. That's leslievernick.com forward slash strength. Until next time, may God bless all of your relationships with him, with others, and with yourself.